Well, good morning. I always like to do that. Let's try that again. We'll do a little wake up because uh, we're going to be digging into God's word this morning. So we want to make sure we have our full attention this morning. Let's say this again. Good morning. I'm glad that you're here today. We're going to have some lovely people coming down the aisles, and they're going to have Bibles for you today. If you do not have a Bible, you really need to get one today. We're going to be going through an entire book today, the book of Amos. And you're like, what? What do you say? Yes, the book of Amos, the entire book, which is nine chapters, so you're going to need to do some flipping of pages, so make sure if you do not have a Bible, grab one today, and if you do not own a Bible, maybe this is your first time ever to a service, we want to say a special welcome, take this Bible home and make it yours, it's our gift to you today. And as we open up God's Word to the book of Amos, I just want to, uh, as a pastor, kind of give a few, like, I don't know, warnings if you will, cautions, things to check ourselves before we open up God's word, specifically the word that we find from the prophet Amos. It's a difficult passage. That would be my first warning. This is some of the most dark tones that God uses towards his people in the Old Testament. You're like, well, why on earth are we reading it? And sometimes I ask the same thing. I'm like, God, why did you put this on my heart? I feel insufficient, honestly, to declare God's word in the tone and the manner that he gave it. But today we need to ready our hearts and be prepared for what God might have to say to us this morning. There's another lens or a warning that I want to give you. It's this. Sometimes we walk in here and we have a skewed view of who God is. You're going to hear tones of God being angry in this passage. And some of us don't, in honesty, know what to do with these tones of anger. I thought God was a God of love, and he certainly is. In fact, if we were back in this day and age, in the time that Amos wrote this, we might might label him something, a turn or burn, or a hellfire brimstone type message. Say, no, no, I don't want that. I want the other type of message. A small g grace-based message. I would say this, that many of us today, if we're honest, we don't know what to do with these passages of God's word, with this idea or this picture that it paints of the God of the Old Testament. Everybody, anybody ever used those terms before, ever heard them? They're said a lot. I hear it a lot as a pastor. People aren't sure what to do. And I think it's because it comes down to this. We don't understand that love and wrath are not exclusive. And in fact, given the state of this world, we should expect that love and wrath go together. Let me explain this a little bit further. Who here has somebody that they love in their life? Well, let me say this. God loves that person with a fierce and passionate love that far exceeds your love. Now God sits and he looks upon the hearts of mankind and he knows their thoughts. He knows every evil thought that a person has thought towards the person that he loves more than you could ever love. He sees every abuse, every hurtful word, If someone abused the person that you loved, what would be your response? 
What, is, what wells up inside of you? It's okay. I would say if God is a God of love, we should also expect that he, that he has this other factor going on. He wrestles with the wrath that he feels, the anger that he feels towards people. And we see that in this passage. I mentioned the small g grace before because in truth, if we look at God's word and we look even at the writings of Jesus and how he talks about hell, sometimes that might even make us uncomfortable. But I would say this, if you were to neglect the wrath of God, you are belittling the grace of God that is available to us through Jesus. The songs that we sing about the Lamb of God make no sense if, it, if there is no wrath of God that we deserve. In fact, the cross itself is emptied of all meaning. Why did Jesus have to go to the cross? Because he had to take the wrath that you and I deserve there and nail it and kill it and bury it and give us new life. That's the gospel. We deserve what he took for us. So we need to hear these words today through that lens of grace. These harsh words of God are not meant, are not meant for our harm, but are meant to save the hearer of these words. These words are words of grace. There's a second lens I want before we even get into the book of Amos. For those who are familiar with the book of Amos, you'll hear a lot about things like social justice and, and people, people are treading on the, on the poor. And God is angry for this. And through our modern day view of what social justice is, sometimes we can take our modern view and insert it into the text and we can think that the solution that is needed in our society, the real social justice that is needed is just more legislation. It's more laws. It's more enforcement. I'd suggest that we are fooling ourselves if we think that a society can change due to external pressures or laws or force and not have heart transformation. See, Israel, who's received this, received a law filled with social justice, but their hearts did not live it out. I would submit this, that forcing people to try to love and other people only breeds resentment on both ends. As long as the allegiance of society's heart, of people's heart, no matter their demographic, is towards what they can get in this world, whether that be through drugs, through ease, whether that be through pleasure or comforts, they'll always be willing to offer other people on their altars in order to get that. Because ultimately, what we want, we go after no matter what other people say. I mean, if we want evidence of this, even in our society, we have many laws enforcing, taking care of people. But in the last 50 years of this earth, more oppression, more bloodshed has been shed than any other 50-year period 
in the history of humanity. In fact, the stats suggest it's not even close. I would say this, that the word of God diagnoses the problem with Israel well. We see a glimpse of this in James. James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, it says this. But each person is tempted, tempted to what? To sin. Each person is tempted to sin when he is lured, enticed by his own desires. You see it? What the heart wants. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. In other words, what you desire, you will receive. If you pursue that which is going to die, you'll start to display the signs of death and ultimately you'll die apart from God because you did not pursue God. In other words, our want, our worship, the thing that we desire will dictate what we think what we act upon, and ultimately the reward that we get. And the Bible is very clear. It's only ever been two options. You pursue God or you pursue the treasure of this earth. Israel is told this right from their conception as a nation. In Deuteronomy 8, 16, and 30. Worship God. Think and act rightly towards other people. Righteousness, justice as a nation. Live with me in my presence, both now and forever. Pursue that which dies and the idols that give you those things of the earth. Your actions will be low. And ultimately, your end is complete separation from God. Any casual reader of the Old Testament will realize that Israel, for a long time now, has abandoned God right worship of him, and right love towards other people. They might continue in their their worship service, but their hearts are far from him. And that, my friends, is why the book of Amos paints a dark picture. Because over and over and over again, God has pursued them in his love, and they over and over and over again have denied him. There's another warning. We're not going to get into every facet of the book of Amos. It's nine chapters. I ask you, read it. Read along with it, Hosea. Hosea speaks to the same people at the same time, and he's saying, hey, hey, you're cheating on your husband, Israel. Specifically, it says condemning words. You are going after other lovers. And God has this word for you. So three questions I want to pose out of the book of Amos is this. What does God have to say to Israel through the book of Amos? What does God have to say to us here collectively in our day? Because Amos is written, you know, 2,500 years ago. And ultimately, what does God have to say through Amos to you this morning? And so as we explore the book of Amos, where do we naturally want to start? Chapter 1, verse 1, says this. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa. All right, Tekoa, in the region of, of Judah. This is a time in which Israel has been separated 
All right, and there's one tribe, Judah, in the south, and the rest of the tribes of Israel in the north. And he's from the south. He's from the other guys. And who is this guy? He is a nobody. He's a shepherd of the poor of society. Chapter 7, we also see that he has a side business as a fig farmer. And he's got a word from the Lord, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Now, who here, if you're honest, when you read through God's word, especially in the Old Testament, you read this list of, yeah, so-and-so, and so-and-so, and so-and-so. Okay, what does God have to say? Anybody? Anybody guilty of that? Come on. Come on. I don't know that name. What is it talking about? All right. Let me give a little bit of glimpse into what's going on here. Jeroboam. Who is Jeroboam? Jeroboam is the king of Israel. Jeroboam has been a successful warrior. He has established wealth and security in the land of Israel. The people of Israel loved him. But if you hear the words of the prophets towards this man, they're not so nice. Why? Because he has mixed the worship of the almighty God with other idols. And so he's not painted in the best light. So here you have a poor nobody going to a rich king with the word of God. Anybody want to be Amos? And he said, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. Right there, what is he saying? The Lord roars from where, from where I am, in the land of Judah, where he's properly worshipped at Zion in Jerusalem. Not where you worship, people of Israel. And the Lord roars, and we can, we can hear this word roars, right? And we think of lions, and we might think of the lion as that, as that, little, that little stuffed animal that our child has. Or maybe the lion, you know, I sit back and nothing else is on, so animal planet, and I'm going to check out the lions and what they're doing today. Or maybe, maybe you went with your children, or you yourself have gone just for fun, no judgment here, okay, to the zoo. And you see a lion. And the lions are usually yawning and lazy in the zoo. And, 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 and to be sure, you're pretty safe, right? In most cases, some cases, you know, you're not safe even at the zoo. But most cases, there's these bars, right? And, oh, look at the lion. Isn't it beautiful? But put yourself in this context. There's no bars, folks. And you hear a lion roar in the distance. What do you do? Man, it's just a lion. Do you do that? No, you pay attention. You fear. This word that God has for them as he opens up his word to them is serious. Pay attention. Don't ignore a lion's roar. You might meet the lion ill-prepared. And we go to chapter 3, verses 8. He continues on this theme of a lion. Turn there with me. Turn there with me. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? You better believe you fear if you hear a lion roar and there's no bars. Anyone want to go to a zoo where they're just like, you just walk up to a lion? Not me. Might be hungry. The Lord has spoken. Who can but prophesy? And here you see the tension even in Amos. God said this. He's called me to do this. I have to. As this meek shepherd, I have to declare this roar to a whole people. And I, who am I? I'm just a shepherd. I feel that tension today. Insufficiency and able to bring this roar. And then in verse 12, we see how serious it is of chapter 3. Thus says the Lord. You can see why he sends the shepherd. As the shepherd rescues from the mouth 
of the lion, two legs, or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria, which is their land, be rescued with the corner of a couch and a part of a bed. This is a life or death message. The stakes are high here in this message. And you hear throughout, I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to warm you up, God is going to be roaring throughout this passage. But you need to hear God's word to his people, his children, as like the stern word from the parent, don't do that. And why do you as a parent say, don't do that, turn from that, don't go down that road, because you love them. You're going to hear him over and over and over again, though before and time and time again they've ignored him. Him saying, seek me, live, don't do those things which will bring your eternal death. Please, please, my children, my love. See, this stern message is a message slathered in grace. Sadly, we know from history, Israel ignored this message. My challenge to us today is let us not put aside the whispers that God is putting in our heart towards us today. Let's not miss the message that he might have for us. Through the first four chapters, we're going to look through them just briefly. God has said, hey, hey, I've given you ample grace. It starts off in chapter 1, verse 6. You see this. He's talking about a, a place called Gaza. And then in 9, he's talking about Tyre. And in, and in 11, you got Edom and the Ammonites later on. And then Moabites and, the, and Judah. What is he doing? Why is he talking about, I thought this word was for Israel. I thought this roar was for Israel. Why does he start talking about these other nations? Well, if you took out a map this morning and you mapped out what he's doing in this passage, he's saying... You saw this nation when they abandoned me, and you saw what happened. You saw this nation, and 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 now I'm speaking to you, Israel. He's drawn a circle around them. He's made them his bullseye for this message. You see, they had seen God's example through the other nations. God has been gracious in this example. They have example even from their own history. In chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, it says this about the people. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. In other words, you know better. You know me. You know my words. Second warning. And they knew the prophet's words in accordance with 3, verse 7. They knew the prophet's words to them, and they heard his, their, God's own words for them over and over and over, saying, come back to me, my bride. Come back to me, my children. Come back to me. Come back to me. Come back to me. He even gives them seven different signs. Excuse me, five different signs. And the five signs of famine, of drought, of blight, pestilence, and sword. The signs of Sodom and Gomorrah, ruin. And yet it says each of those five times, if you'll look with me in chapter 4, verse 6, he says, you did not return to me. Verse 8, yet you did not return to me. Verse 9, yet you did not return to me. Verse 10, yet you did not return to me. Verse 11, yet you did not return to me. 
You can hear his heart is breaking. He wants them to live. And yet they've ignored him time and time again. Do not ignore God's voice for you this morning. And think that it's okay to meet him, the lion of Judah, one day. Return to him, seek him, and live. The central warning here is this. We see it in chapter 5. Excuse me, in chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. It says this. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. And there's an exclamation mark because he's yelling it. Prepare to meet your God. And you see in chapter 5, verses 18 and 20, he says this. You think you're ready, but you're not. Woe to you. Who desire the day of the Lord, the desire the day that the Lord's going to come? Why would you desire the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not life, as if a man fled from a lion and met a bear, or went to his house to rest and leaned his hand against the wall, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light, gloom with no brightness in it? What is he saying? saying, prepare to meet this lion that is roaring. And guess what, Israel? You think you're ready because you're religious. But you're not ready. We know from God's word, Jesus gives us a similar warning in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. It says, a lot of people think they're going to be ready. Many said to me, Lord, Lord, did we not do these things? Did we not go to church? And did we not do good stuff? And he'll say, away from me, I never knew you. That's a hard word from Jesus. This is a hard word from Amos. They're about to be removed from his presence, his land, his words, and it's a bitter day. Do you know him? Are you ready? I plead with you today as Amos, as God is pleading to his people through Amos, Be ready. By the mercies of God, be ready. Examine, as 2 Corinthians 13, examine yourself, test yourself. Are you in the faith? Ultimately, we know Israel is not ready. Why does God say Israel is not ready to meet him? Two issues, two reasons that I want to highlight for us today. One, their worship. What they wanted, what they desired, what their hearts went after was off base. Let's read in chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. It says this. And this is sad. Please hear it. This is sad. God is literally in this passage mocking their worship. It says, come to Bethel. Notice, not Jerusalem. Come to Bethel and transgress to Gilgal and multiply transgressions. Bethel's their place of worship. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened. When they were supposed to give that which is unleavened. Proclaim freewill offerings and publish them for so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord. Chapter 5, verses 21. Let's turn there. What else does he have to say about their worship? It says this. I hate. Does God hate? 
I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in, the, in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will, look, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, the melody of your harps. I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like have an ever-flowing stream. We'll get into that a little bit later. And then if you look at 8, chapter 8, verse 5, it reveals a little bit of their heart about God's worship. They say, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain? And the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale. When will this worship service be done so I can get about what I really want? Do you see it? First off, it reveals to us in these passages that they were worshiping God in the wrong place, in the wrong way. In fact, in, the, in their land, they had established golden calves to represent God. Sound familiar? They had the wrong place in the wrong manner. Of worship, And ultimately we see that it is rooted in the fact that they had their hearts set on earthly treasures. How can I say that? Their idols that they placed alongside God revealed this. Through Asherah, they wanted sexual pleasure. Through Anat, they wanted the spoils and safety of war. Through Baal, they wanted the wealth that the good weather would bring to an agricultural people. They wanted the security therein. What are they doing? What is God saying? God is saying, as he has said right from Deuteronomy chapter 6 to this people. I'm going to read it. In verse 14 and 15 it says, You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you. From the face of the earth. God has never been okay with God and your mistress on the side. What you're saying is you go after these other heart idols, these other things of this earth, is saying, God, you're not my real satisfier. I, I, I want you and I want this because I'm not satisfied in you alone. Imagine saying that to your spouse. I need these other people because you are not. God is rightfully jealous. As would we if the one we loved was cheating on us with other mistresses. Are you ready? God says in Isaiah and in Matthew, these people worship me with their mouths, but their hearts are far from me. You have these services where you tell me you love me, but you don't love me. Not in your actions. God wants to be our lone desire. He wants our heart. He does not want our lip service. He wants our lives. And he's not okay sharing us with another. Before we look in judgment on them, let's look up upon ourselves. Are we divided do we put other things before the worship of God or mix them into our minds as we worship God? Whether it be sports, entertainment, relaxing, whether it's personal success or our children's success or entertainment or relaxing. 
What is coming before our God? What are we rationalized should come before him in his worship? In our personal time and in our time together, whether it be small group or worship on Sunday. Their hearts, their wants are off. Second, their works and their actions, which overflow from their heart, remember? Wrong heart, wrong thought, wrong action, wrong reward. Their works and their actions have issues. Let's look at some of those. Chapter 5, verse 24. We heard that he doesn't like their feasts, he doesn't like their singing. But he says this, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Righteousness is this idea that individually we act and love one another well. We have right living towards one another. And justice is the social parameters that a nation would have in order to uphold the right living towards one another. That's what God wants. He doesn't just want lip service. He wants proper horizontal worship which always leads to pro, uh, proper vertical, excuse me, which always leads to proper horizontal living towards other people, love of God and love of others. But he doesn't see it in them. In chapter 6, verses 4, we see a little bit more of why and how they're not living right horizontally. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall. The ultimate picture of excess. Before we paint somebody else in our lives in that way, compared to the rest of the world, this is us. All of us. Who sings idle songs of the sound of the harp like David and invent for themselves instruments of music. Who drink wine in bowls or in excess and anoint themselves with the finest oils, perfumes, hair treatments, skin treatments, but are not grieved, are not grieved for the ruin of the people all around them, the ruin of Joseph. Are we broken that many are going to go meet God and they do not know him? Are we broken that many are hurting all around us, even in our own church? Therefore, they shall be the first of those who go into exile and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out, who stretch themselves out shall pass away. The Lord has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, not be messed with. I abhor the pride of Jacob, and I hate his strongholds. I'll deliver up the city and all that is in it. And then you see in chapter 8, verses 4 through 6, you're like, this is a lot of reading. This is a lot of smackdown. We're going to get to the bright part of this. It says this in, chapter four, in verse 4 of chapter 8. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end. Trampling on the needy. And say, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain in the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale? There it is again. They're doing it because their hearts want something else, not God. That we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances. They're cheating people out of their money. That we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff or the refuse of the wheat. 
The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. God is not mocked. Prepare to meet him. What's going on here? Their justice, their righteousness is out of whack. Why? Because wealth has consumed their hearts. Their luxury has lulled them to sleep. And thinking they are independent and secure on their own, they have forgotten God. They've become selfish in their self-indulgence, in their home, in their food, in their music, in their drinking, in their skin, and in their hair products. Are we lulled into a false sense of security? Are distractions distracting from our heart problem before the Lord? Because wealth had their hearts, they are indifferent to the poor that are broken on all those people all around them. They even oppressed them with crooked scales and crippling taxes, and they, they consumed all the resources and gave the leftovers that were overpriced. Do we consider? Do we consider? our brothers and our sisters. We consider those around us and we set the prices for things or the work that we produce. We see also in chapter two that their, their sexual sin was prevalent. In fact, father and son would go into the same woman. What does it say there? Let's look, let's look just quickly. Chapter seven and chapter eight. A man and his father go into the same girl. Why is this offensive? Because they claim my name so that my holy name is profane. They bear my name and they're doing this. They'd even use their worship as excuses for their illicit sex. Many fathers and sons, even wives and daughters these days, are looking at the same images and giving themselves to another. It's ruining families and marriages and it's profaning the holy name of God. Do we treat it seriously? They also love lies instead of truth. In chapter 5, verse 10, we see this. They even rejected and hated the right living and those who speak, spoke truth amongst them. This is the saddest thing because sometimes this happens even within the church as we poke fun at those who uphold holiness in dating and entertainment or in humor. At the end of the day, why are they not ready to meet him? Because they've completely ignored God's morality taught in the Torah and given to them over and over and over again because they did not love God and others as a society. But even then, even though they are being adulterous, even though they've gone after other lovers, God loves these people and he's graciously calling to them all throughout this book. Look at chapter 5, verses 4. What does it say there? You can see it on the screen here with me. What does he say? He says this, Seek me and live. Seek good and not evil and live. Listen to my voice. Come back to me. I want you back even though you have cheated on me over and over and over again. I want you to live with me again. Those of us who know Hosea, his contemporary, sent to the same people and know the story. We see this over and over again. Come back to me is the message. Even though you've been cheating and going, running after other lovers. 
The sad part about this is that ultimately the visions of chapter 7 and chapter 9, which you can read later on, come to pass. And they're banished from the presence. In chapter 8, verse 10, even the precious words of the Lord. Many of us who know the presence of God and the sweet words of God hear this as the ultimate, as the ultimate bad news. Why? Because we know that the presence of the Lord is like the presence of the sun. Without it, it is dark and gloomy. And we know that the words of the Lord are sweet and nourishing. And without it, we are but starving. We're given gravel instead of honey. Ultimately, in the Old Testament, this means that they would not be right before God on the day that they would meet him. And the sad part about this is the northern kingdom would be captured and dispersed by the Assyrians. Why? Because they did not seek him. It's a bitter day. That's what he's ultimately saying to Israel. But what is he saying to us? You see, this word would be really, really sad. And without hope, seemingly. It's a dark picture that has just been painted. But there is a message of hope in this book that is a message of hope for us. Turn to chapter, chapter 9. This is a message that they didn't get to see the fruition of. That Amos, even though he spent his life pouring himself out and saying, come back to God, even though they ignored there's good news that he gets to declare, not to them, but to another people, to us today. And I need you to hear something. Hear me right. Don't look on them in judgment. Let's, let's turn the eyes to ourselves. We're no different than them. We have each gone after earthly stuff instead of our heavenly Father. We've all gone after our own way. We've all gone astray. But, but there's good news. Someone would deal with the wrath of God that you and I deserve. And I say you and I because I see myself not up here as some holier-than-thou preacher that's bringing the word of Amos. Like, I've, like I can bring it without humility. I am the chief of all sinners in this room. I am an adulterer. I am a murderer. And ultimately, apart from this news that we're about to hear, I deserve God's wrath fully poured out upon me. But there's an amazing grace. Though, though the wages of sin is death, the gift of God, the gift, something that unearned is eternal life that came through. The person we're going to hear about right now. Chapter 9, verse 11. In that day, oh, it's a good day. I will raise up the booth or the house of David that has fallen. In other words, the Messiah is coming from the line of David. And I will repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and get this, all the nation, that's us people, all the nation who are called by my name declares the Lord... Who's going to do this? The Lord, not us. The Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. There's blessing coming. How? How is that blessing, that overwhelming blessing coming? The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, the true Israel. 
And they will rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again, there's a security here, they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, declares the Lord. How does he do this? Though our sin was great, he would send a greater Savior in Jesus Christ, our Lord who would go to the cross and take our wrath that we deserved and bury it in the ground for those who would call upon his name. There's good news here. There's amazing capital G grace here for us in Jesus Christ. I want you to see that the roar has changed. Hosea, remember his contemporary, chapter 11. Turn there with me. Hosea, just just a couple... Pages before, chapter 11, he says this, verse 8. You can see God's heart in this time. How can I give you up, O Ephraim, a tribe of Israel? How can I hand you up, hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adamah and treat you like Zeboim? These are towns in the Sodom and Gomorrah story. My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. Yet he loves even the adulterer. I will not execute my burning anger. I will, not, I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. And hear this. They shall go after the Lord. They'll seek the Lord. He will roar like a lion. And when he roars, his children, his children will come trembling from the west. And they shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from Assyria, land of Assyria. Remember who took them over? Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. You see, the roar takes on a different tone. His true children will hear this roar and they will come home. They will seek him and they will live. My prayer for you today is that you would hear that roar of grace. You will seek him and live. What is God saying through Amos to you? Not just us collectively, but to you. I want to make sure we tune in here. What is God saying? He's saying, seek him and live. If you are not ready to meet the Lord because you have never accepted Jesus Christ and the atonement, the sacrifice he made is the Lamb of God that takes away your sin and mine on the cross. If you've never placed your faith there, hear me. Hear God. Seek him and live. Believe that he has taken your deserved wrath and he has nailed it to the cross. Believe that he's put it in the grave and he's risen so that we may walk free without condemnation anymore. Turn away from those old ways, those things of the earth, and follow him. He has good things for you, blessings for you in Jesus. What he's saying is the way that actually Russ talked about early on. Romans 8, 1. If you will go to him, if you'll seek him, place your faith in him, there is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's gone. That's capital G, grace, and it's for you. Seek him, hear his voice. And live. 
And maybe you're a person that has already accepted Christ. How then should I speak to you today? Continue in the progress. We're not perfect yet. We still have heart idols that need to be surrendered this morning. Maybe God has been whispering to you today and you heard his words of condemnation as, whoa, I better be right in this way. My heart is wrong this way. How then do you continue the way you've started? Believe in your new standing in Christ. There's no more condemnation. You are now free to live for him. Believe it and turn away from those heart idols and follow him in the power and in the presence by the leading of the Holy Spirit today. Both of which take humility. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Right now, we're going to have an opportunity for you to present yourself before God in humility. As the worship team comes, they're going to sing a song about his amazing grace. It's for you, every one of you. It's for me. I invite you to come up here during this song and bend the knee before the almighty holy God who loves you and gave himself up for you because he loves you. That's the offer. There's a roar, but it's filled, it's saturated, it's slathered in grace. Come, that you may live. Come. Even now, stand and come, that you may live. Let's check ourselves to make sure that we're right before God. Heavenly Father, during this song, may you move people in humility to say, I surrender. I have been going after other things. I've been cheating on you. Lord, forgive. Lord, thank you that we know from your word in 1 John 1, 9, we confess our sins. You are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us completely from all unrighteousness. Thank you for that good news available in Jesus. Thank you.